You're tuned in to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. In a year of pandemic and protest, the need for education in black history has become even more critical. Today is the first in our Kojo Connect series on race and social justice, and we're talking about teaching black history with two educators who are doing just that. Joining us is Greg Carr, chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Dr. Carr, always a pleasure. Really a pleasure to be back with you again, Kojo. Thank you. Also speaking with Leslie Young, who's a teacher at the Murray School. Leslie Young, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Greg Carr, what did you learn about black history when you were in school? Was it part of the curriculum? Not really, Kojo. I mean, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and at 55 years old, um, I was really in that first generation that was bust. And uh, I think uh, my classmates and I, we all experienced some of the afterlife of American apartheid, legal apartheid, and in going into classrooms uh, with some very important and notable exceptions, heroic teachers, many of them young black women who made sure we got some uh, some instruction, particularly later on in high school. I think about Jeannie Scott and Barbara Gray and some others I had at Hillsborough High School in Nashville. But in the early years, uh, very little, very little. In fact, uh, I, I can remember as a child in elementary school being uh, drafted into pageants, into class assemblies and, and programs where we would actually sing some of the old songs from the old days of the Lost Cause, uh, you know, uh, John Henry, you know, black boys in T-shirts swinging makeshift hammers singing John Henry. And I remember one time we, we, we re- revived the old Broadway tune and without a change in the lyric, I can distinctly remember singing a darkie's born, but he ain't no good without a song. And so I don't think my experience was particularly an outlier, really. Our, our history came from our community, our church, our family, and our communities, but not in the schools. When did you know you wanted to teach and to teach African-American studies specifically? Oh, wow, brother. Um, <laughs> I blame some of that on your generation. I think the Black Power <laughs> Movement of the 70s and 80s drug me into it. By the time I made it to law school at Ohio State, and after my second, in the summer of my second year, I clerked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in New York. And every Saturday, I would go to Harlem, 135th and Convent, for a meeting of one of the most important study groups we've seen in black community, uh, the First World Alliance, John Henry Clark, Yosef Benyakin, and so many others. And I remember distinctly the, 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 sun, the summer Saturday, I sat in front of John Henry Clark, and he said, all I ever wanted to be was a great classroom teacher like my third grade teacher, Ms. Evelina Taylor. And something clicked. I came back to Ohio, finished my law degree, and immediately enrolled in my master's program in black studies. Uh, Manny Marable was the chair of African Studies at Ohio State at the time. And I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in the classroom. And uh, so much respect to Sister Leslie and that work because it's those early years. It had stamped its imprint on John Henry Clark. And all those years later, he remembered that third grade teacher and said, that's what I wanted to do. And it changed my life. You mentioned some of my favorite names, John Henry Clark, Joseph Benjokanan, and here in Washington we had... Chancellor Williams, who was educating us all. Leslie Young, what was your education in black history like growing up? Well, I think I agree with Dr. Carr that it came from the community. Um, I grew up in L.A. I was born in Inglewood, and we moved out to Walnut, which was a very diverse suburb um, in the 80s. And I went to small, private, religious-based schools, and I, I... Honestly, I, except for learning California history and doing the classic mission project, 
I really couldn't tell you what the curriculum was, um, but uh, we belonged to uh, Holman United Methodist Church in Los Angeles, and we were there three or four times a week. Um, and our pastor was Jim Lawson, who was a member of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and that was a powerful experience, um, having him as our pastor. And there was a lot of black history um, infused into our Sunday school and into our, our sermons and the services themselves. There was a lot of programming um, around that. And my, my own family had a lot of genealogists. And so at family reunions, we would talk a lot about our own family's history. I learned a lot that way. Um, and then uh, I was also involved in Jack and Jill and the mothers of our chapter really took that opportunity to um, put together a lot of black history programming for us. And so it felt like it was all around me all of the time. I don't think it was happening at school. It might have been, but I, I don't remember those experiences. I remember the ones that my community and my family provided for me the most. And talk about how more you learned about history as you moved on, because while James Lawson was your pastor and talked a lot about civil rights and participating, it wasn't until later you realized just how deeply involved he was in the civil rights movement. Yeah, I mean, you're a kid and your pastor's like, I was in the civil rights movement. And you're like, <laughs> okay, yeah, he's one of the you know thousands of marchers, or you know, he was standing near the pool at the at the, you know, March on Washington. But um, I actually, March, um, the book by John Lewis, the graphic novel, was part of a sixth-grade curriculum I was teaching. Um, and I was pre-reading it in preparation for working through that unit with my class, and I came to the part in the graphic novel where they had drawn him in um, and showed him <laughs> with John Lewis <laughs> talking about having gone to India and learned about learning about Gandhi and nonviolence and bringing that back to the movement and being one of the instructors of nonviolence um, to the other students at SNCC. And I was like, oh... He was a civil rights leader leader, um, and I really didn't get that um, until then. And I went back and, and asked my parents, they're like, oh, yeah, he's still, he's still doing workshops at church. And so I started every, it's like every third or fourth um, Saturday, he does these nonviolence workshops. They're over Zoom. People can go to the Holman United Methodist website and still study nonviolence um, with Reverend James Lawson. Yes, that's when the local pastor's reputation expanded. When did you know you wanted to be a teacher? And what about teaching engaged you most? Um, I think I, I have always loved working with kids. I was a babysitter and a tutor in high school. Um, but I think when I went away to college, I imagined I would do something in marketing or advertising. And even that led me back to working with children. Um, and so I was working in an after-school program called Torch in New York City, and I just loved working with the students and providing them um, experiences that let them dream. Um, that was just really awesome. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll do um, out-of-school out education, museum education. Um, and I went to Bank Street, um, which is in New York City. It's a, a graduate school of education and a laboratory school. Um, and as part of my museum education experience, I did a classroom um, internship. And again, working with the students was just fantastic. And so despite my <laughs> intentions, I became a classroom teacher and have just loved um, every experience of that since. Well, I, was growing, I grew up in a British colony in South America in the Caribbean called British Guyana. And all the history that I was taught up until I was about 16 years old was British history. And then they introduced a, a British book about West Indian history and taught us that that was West Indian history. It wasn't until an innovative teacher came along and started teaching us 
of about all things, the Haitian Revolution in 1804, that was when my interest in history was awakened because the story of Toussaint Louverture and Dessalines and that revolution is what awakened me. So it's clear that it didn't matter where you were or are in the world, you weren't learning a great deal about black history. Here's Noel in Washington, D.C. Noel, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Greetings. Thank you, Kojo, and happy Black History Month to everyone. My comment is, even though um, I did, we did hear about Black history in school and whatnot, it blows my mind to think of which figures they always wanted to reiterate. And it was always George Washington Carver with the peanuts and the peanut butter and Rosa Parks with sitting down. But it was so rare that we heard about like Steve Biko and like Stokely Carmichael and Ida B. Wells. And I think it was like there was still so much activism there. So they, I feel like I'm not trying to, you know, you know, shut down what George Washington Carver did, but I'm like, you're keeping us focused on peanut butter and Rosa Parks. And what they also didn't elaborate was Rosa Parks was already an activist. She had been attending, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on some of the names now, so that wasn't just one day she was decided and worn out. That was her using her agency in that moment saying, here's what I've been going to meetings for. Here's what we've been standing up for. Here's a moment where I use my agency and I'm going to sit in the front. That was not that she was so worn out with, I'm so tired of this. Today I'm doing something different. And we didn't even go depth, we didn't even go deep into what Rosa Parks was really all about and where she got her start. So um, I just wanted to make my comment about who we decide to keep saying, oh, this is, this is who you look at in black history. It's more than peanut butter, and it's more than just someone who, than the lady that sat on the bus that day. There's a lot more to, to um, research. So I encourage educators and curricula to please get working on that, and thank you for this topic. Well, during the Black Power Movement, we were taught that Rosa Parks' history had been um, whitewashed. Greg, we're of the belief here that celebration and coverage of a group of people should not be confined to a single month. But February is Black History Month. What do you recommend our listeners make time for this February? Well, I mean, a simple recommendation would be to start with the 1933 collection of essays published by the man who came up with the idea for Black History Month in 1926, and that will be Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro. Uh, Dr. Woodson, in fact, of course, this is during segregation, the segregated schools did a pretty good job of teaching black history. And one of the things that Dr. Woodson wanted to do with his association, which, of course, is still responsible now for Black History Month, the Association for African American Life and History, is to use February, the second week of February, marking the birth dates of Lincoln and Douglas, to celebrate what had been studied the whole year. And when you look at the bulletin that the, the association published for school teachers and children, really, the Negro History Bulletin, Every year, they would start in the fall. They'd have an October blurb and say, all right, you all, let's get together because if we don't have anything that we've studied, when it comes to February, we will not celebrate. And the last thing Woodson wrote before he made transition, right there on 9th Street in D.C. in the district, was an essay called No Study and Consequently No Celebration. And he said, everybody calling for orators during Negro History Week is missing the point. Because all these orators talk about is the race problem and how it can be solved. And to Noel's point, she, uh, he said, instead of celebrating what we've studied the whole year, which includes the inspirational stories of Negro history, which will inspire our youth and instruct them to be able to problem solve in the world we face. So I'd say if I just had one book for a February conversation, start with Carter G. Woodson. I think you'd be surprised to realize that he would probably look at today and say, wait, this is the exact opposite 
of what I wanted Negro History Week and then, of course, Black History Month after 1976 to be. And, of course, when you start moving around again, cultural tourism, D.C. has uh, Carter Woodson's house on 9th Street that Greg mentioned as one of the sites that you can visit. But if you'd like to join this conversation about teaching black history, call us at 800-433-8850. Did you attend a historically black college or university? Shoot us a tweet at Kojo Shore or email to kojo at wmu.org. I'm Kojo Namdi. It's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. We're talking about teaching black history with Leslie Young, who is a teacher at the Murray School here in Washington. And Greg Carr is chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. I'd like to start this time by going to Jean in Alexandria, Virginia. Jean, your turn. Hi, Jean. You're on the air. Hi. Is this, uh, am I I on the air? Yes, you are. Okay, sorry. I'm actually in Vienna. That's what confused me. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to weigh in as a, a person who grew up in a very white town, as, as a white person in northeastern Pennsylvania. We did not have black history in the curriculum, just maybe sort of incidentally, and this was in the 50s um, and 60s. But I went to American U, which you all are very familiar with, and we had a wonderful class uh, taught by a visiting professor from Howard in uh, black literature. In the interim, what I did as a teenager was uh, teach myself black history through the public library. And that was my access and um, gave me a background that, unfortunately, school didn't give me. So I'm, I'm really heartened to hear uh, the work that's going on to put it as part of the curriculum. Thank you very much for your call. Greg Carr, what effect has the failure to understand the history of race and racism had on people in this country? Well, I think it's certainly made us all the poorer for not being able to have a deeper appreciation of our common humanity through the particular lens of of all of our different cultural experiences. But I think it hasn't really prevented the continuing unfolding of, of, of this American experiment. And by that I mean... People find ways to resist oppression. And we know curriculum is probably as much or more about socialization as it is about anything else. And so the impact of really not integrating, and by integrating, including the stories and the voices of all the folk in this country, what it's done is probably forestall the working out of those central tensions that have always been present in this settler colony. I mean, one quick example, you know, when in the 1619 Project and other, you know, kind of contemporary conversations, folks say that slavery is America's original sin. I often think, 
well, what are our, our, our First Nations kin thinking at this point? <laughs> because, you know, it, it becomes an attempt to battle over narrative, and then it becomes an attempt to fight over pride of place. Um, you know, I wouldn't, for example, start this conversation in 1776 or 1619. For me, the real founding of the United States as a possible project is maybe 1860, 1861. It's the Civil War and Reconstruction. But the, the kind of ordinal pre- preoccupation is really, I think, about the power to define. So when we, do not, uh, when we do not include everyone, then we're all fighting over pride of place as a marker for the ability to get to shape the narrative. And it just, it just, it just doesn't do us any, any good, ultimately. Leslie Young, what, in your view, do we risk by not understanding our history, and in particular, the history of black people in this country, and as Greg Carr pointed out, the history of Native Americans? Um, I, I think we fail to understand ourselves. Um, part of my, my, my practice in my classroom is just to give students a place to understand themselves and their place in this world. Um, I think education is really personal. Um, and by studying many different kinds of people through many identities and many lenses, um, I think students start to see themselves as multifaceted people with a lot of different angles. And I think when they can appreciate themselves in that capacity, they can appreciate others. I think it's the building block of empathy. Um, I think when our curriculums are not diverse enough, when they don't include black history, when they don't include indigenous history, students catch on that something's missing, something's missing. And those, those things that are missing um, become like holes and they become holes in their own identity and they become holes in their empathetic self. They become um, blind spots. They become blind spots. And so as they're engaging in the world, they're thinking, why don't I know about this? Why don't I understand this? Why is this causing so much conflict in me? Why can't I approach this with with openness? What What is going on? And I think that's why we have so many people who are like, why didn't my school ever teach me this history? Why didn't they teach me this person? Why didn't they teach me this place? Um, why don't I know these things? Um, and it feels like a blind spot in their experience, and, and they know they're missing out. Kids know they're missing out, and I think when adults grow up and don't have these foundational histories, they don't have these frameworks for understanding other people, they they know that there are gaps and that there are lost opportunities. Um, Greg Carl, what we often see in schools are sanitized versions of history. This question can be for you too, Leslie Young. Uh, you know, uh, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Dr. King made a speech. Why is it important for children to learn the unvarnished truth about our history and our country? Well, that's interesting, uh, Kojo. I mean, there's obviously no way for all of us or any of us to know all the facts. So narrative is at the center of curriculum, right? When, when we wrote the uh, curriculum framework for the mandatory African-American history course in Philadelphia high schools, we were after a single objective, I think, and that was have our students, have our teachers, have our communities ask better questions. Because I agree with Leslie 100%. Once folk realize that there are different answers and different ways to interpret the same facts, then I satisfy it with one way. So we spent a lot of time coming up with six basic categories of questions. And we said, if you put this in front of students, they will then consult the textbooks, realizing that those silences are there. So you ask, for example, who is Rosa Parks to the white citizens of Montgomery and the white power structure? And you get one answer. That's the answer they may see in their textbook. 
Then you ask, who is she to her community? And when those stories start coming out, the students start realizing, wait a minute, we can ask these two questions of all of our books? Absolutely. The problem then is a problem of turning them off, which you don't want to do. They're not going to be satisfied. <laughs> better questions inevitably lead to better answers. And, you know, that, and I think that's really what we have to get to. And, and, and that, that, that's a way to solve that kind of problem. And oh, I should want to say one other thing. The materials exist. Carter Woodson's textbook, the first textbook, The Negro in Our History, was printed in 1922. These, con- these contemporary conversations about exclusions, they tend not to tap into the momentum of the archive. This work has been done every generation. And in black communities, every generation's work is almost gets erased when contemporary conversations come into play. As if people are saying they're making novel discoveries. And this really isn't novel. You can consult the, consult the archive and use that momentum. Leslie Young, kind of same question to you. Why is it important for children to learn the unvarnished truth about our history and our country? I think it goes back again to um, making sure they can see themselves in ways that are helpful. When we try to craft perfect heroes that are sanitized or whitewashed or curated in particular ways that often serve the purpose of institutions, honestly, I mean, these individuals are complex people with complex histories and lives. And when we start selecting out who we're going to um, lift up and in what ways we're going to lift them up, often those choices are made um, in service to the institution, not to the children that we are actually teaching. So I think when we teach children who people are fully, we allow children to be themselves fully, to see themselves fully, that they don't have to be perfect to be leaders, that they don't have to be perfect to join with others and care uh, about issues in the world and be concerned and act. They don't have to wait until they're perfect people to make a difference. Um, And so I think when we try to portray our leaders as perfect people, we limit the potential that children see in themselves. And I do think that's really dangerous. Here's Eber in Washington, D.C. Eber, you're on the air. You only have about a minute before we go to break, but go ahead, please. Hi, thank you, Kojo, for, for providing this critical space. Uh, my name is Ever, and I just wanted Eber. to take this opportunity uh, to share with everyone um, that uh, of an opportunity for educators. So I've had the pleasure of working with the WNDC Education Foundation, who recently published their 2021 Uh, physical calendar, Women of Color and the Fight for the Vote. So this calendar traces how women of color, particularly African-American women, have worked toward this moment, from Sojourner Truth to Jorena Lee to Kamala Harris. Um, This calendar is available to all all educators. And along with the calendar, my fellow educator colleague and a Howard grad, Maya Ferguson, and the 2019 National History Teacher of the Year, Alicia Butler, we are hosting a free virtual professional development meetup and collaboration space next Wednesday at February 10th at 4 p.m., where we will discuss how can we integrate black history, particularly black women, in the classroom and across the curriculum. All right, got to take a short break. Thank you for your call. You, too, can join this conversation. Send us a tweet at Kojo Shaw or email to kojo at wmu.org. How would you rate what you learned in school about black history? I'm Kojo Namdi.
Welcome back. We're discussing teaching black history with Dr. Greg Carr, who is chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, and Leslie Young, who's a teacher at the Murray School. Cynthia emails, I think as a result of when I grew up and where, I'm now 59, I received a healthy dose of black history. I grew up here in D.C. and spent my first six years at an all-black Seventh-day Adventist school where I learned black historians and black spirituals. I transferred to public school in the seventh grade in 1974, and that's where I learned all the verses of Lift Every Voice and Sing, and in eighth grade, black history was a required course. We had the benefit of being taught by teachers who were around and may have been part of the civil rights movement and that filtered into the D.C. public schools at the time. You will hear that from a lot of students in D.C. who went to school, especially during that time. But Leslie Young, talk a little bit about the resources that you rely on. What's available and what are you excited about as a teacher? Well, I mean, there just has never been more material. <laughs> There's never been more material um, out there. Um of course, I really love materials from the Zen Education Project and Teaching for Change. I think those are great places to start because they are not only going to have real unvarnished true history that teachers can um, read about and gain background for their own knowledge, but they're going to have interactive activities like simulations and role plays um, that really engage students. Um, Teaching Tolerance recently changed its name to Learning for Justice. Um, so that's a great website. Facing History um, has wonderful resources as well. Um, there are incredible, I'm an English teacher now, um, as well as a math teacher, and so there are incredible books. Um, I just read a picture book that I can't wait to bring to my sixth graders. They, they still sometimes let me read to them about Katherine Johnson, and it's a gorgeous book linking her math work to NASA. And, of course, a lot of them have seen hidden figures. And so there are so many ways to bring it in. Um, there's just a lot of really wonderful material being printed, being produced. Um, the 1619 Project, the Pulitzer Center has excellent resources. Uh, the New York Times, I found wonderful things um, on the New York Times education website. Uh, they're just a really fantastic resources out there for teachers. And so teachers don't need to feel like they have to go it alone or like they need to make up their own thing. Um, I think there are w many, many entry points for all of us, whether you are someone who um, is just starting to learn about black history or figure out that, how to put that into your classroom or whether you've been doing it for years. Um, and I found that over the years I've been asked to teach different things. I've taught, I've taught fourth grade. I've taught sixth grade. I've taught seventh grade, English, history, math, um, combined humanities. And each time has presented a new opportunity for me to look at a curriculum with fresh eyes and say, where can this history um, connect? Where can this history become relevant for my students? Where um, are the skills that they need to learn aligned with the black history that I want to teach? Um, and so I've been able to do it over the last 15 years in many different ways. Um, it's always been an exciting part of the practice for me. Uh, you can find more educational resources for black history on our webpage, kojoshow.com. Dot org. That's kojoshow.org. Here is Lenny in Annapolis. Lenny, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello, Kojo. Uh, um, my question is kind of a uh, uh, kind of a macro question. So my, my own experience uh, when I was growing up in New York and I was exposed to black history is that it tended to focus 
nearly 100 percent on on African American history, rather that that you know that I would what would I consider Black history in general. And I'm wondering if that has expanded since then. I mean, it's been a long time since I was in you know elementary school and high school and all that. So does that include does Black history today as it is taught, at least in the experience of your uh, people there? Is it in a in a general world context? You know, does it include the Caribbean? Uh, does it include things? things of that sort. I mean, does that, does my question make sense? Very much so. Greg Carr? Well, no, yes, absolutely. I think there is a heavy nativist orientation to American curriculum in general. And I think that is one of the most difficult things for us to grapple with. And I think about when you say you grew up in New York, I'm thinking about the, the fight in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, back in the late 60s, <laughs> early 70s, which led to organizations like the East and Brooklyn. The, the, a lot of these black organizations outside of school and during segregation in school were always be uh, global in scope, always internationalist. So, you know, Kojo, you mentioned, of course, um, uh, Toussaint Louverture. When you look back at the segregated schools, you had a number of black schools that taught about Tucson. And of course, mm-hmm. it's no no accident in D.C. And from the late 19th century up through the 1960s in a lot of those schools during segregation, they learned black history as an international uh, proposition. All you have to do is go back and look through the pages of the Negro History Bulletin, which was published right there on 9th Street out of Woodson's house. And you understand that the history was always internationalist. But the problem we have, I think, in this country is that the project of curriculum and public education in particular is one to reinforce the national project. And so the black history that would be taught or the history that we taught in any way would really turn into footnotes for that kind of nativist American exceptionalist project, which is why I thoroughly agree. Zen education, teaching for change, you know, uh, very important. And it's also why I think there's a problematic at the heart of projects like the 1619 Project, which in some ways, ironically, agree with some of the thrust of a 1776 commission with kind of a nativist American exceptionalist narrative woven into the objectives of the project. And so there's plenty of stuff out there to refute that, but it's, it hasn't worked its way into the curriculum yet because this country is one that has never come to terms with the idea of being part of a world community, not at the level of education of its young. Thank you very much for your call, Lenny. Here is Altaf in Northern Virginia. Altaf, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you so much, Kojo. And I want to say hello to my brother, Greg Carr. Uh, I'm a professor in the School of Social Work at Howard University, and we have something called the Black Perspective that we teach to our students. What I just wanted to share was how interesting it is as an age, South Asian of Indian descent, uh, someone, again, from a, a formerly colonized, if you will, uh, a part of the world, to try to first understand and then to really share with the students the importance of knowing the roots. Where did we come from? And what's amazing is that we're at a historically black college. And you would assume that, okay, students will know. Oftentimes, and I teach courses on homelessness, disasters, immigrants, refugees, when I start with the great migration, they oftentimes don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about the enslaved coming from Africa. I'm talking about the movement from south to north. So the, the thing I wanted to share is that it's really critical for us to keep, keep going at this and not take for granted that even uh, African-American children, because they're so removed now from the civil rights movement, will know this. 
and then give them resources. So I want to conclude by saying thank you, Koja, for having the show, uh, Greg Carr, of course, and Leslie. And then please visit the Conscious Kid Library. Conscious Kid Library, a former Howard School of Social Work student, started that organization to be able to give resources to uh, people, especially, you know, teachers, on teaching our children uh, through the uh, children's books and featuring uh, uh, authors of color. Thank you again, Kojo. Altaf, thank you very much for your call. Leslie Young, um, what does it mean to teach the collective? Teach the collective. So I think this goes back to the previous caller's comment that when we start to choose individuals and we start to curate them in particular ways, we lose out um, on important narratives about those individuals, but also about the ways in which they're supported by communities. Um, And so there have been some really great articles that have changed my thinking about this. Um, And I think it's important as a teacher to always be willing to shift. Um, And so thinking about the ways in which people were working together um, feels really important right now. this past summer, uh, which is you know sort of being billed as another freedom summer, um, it, it was done by groups that often say that they are leaderless or that they have collective leadership or they want to keep their leaders hidden out of safety. Um, and I think that that has become an important conversation looking back at history and where did we single people out when truly they were working with groups of people. And so how does it become important to look at SNCC as a whole and all of the different people who led SNCC throughout its time? Um, How do we look at um, the Montgomery bus boycott as a collective experience where lots of people worked together to accomplish a goal? Um, I think it takes the pressure off of all these individual heroes to be perfect, and I think it's a far more inspiring story for our students when they think about it's not that I have to rise up and lead the charge. I just need to look and see who's around me that I can get together with, think with, innovate with, and that it's a, a project of working together. Um, it's not competitive. It's not individualistic. And in that spirit, um, it's really kind of anti-white supremacist, right? This individualist American narrative um, that gets lifted up is contradicted when we talk about the collective. And I think that that's always been a strength of the black community to work as a collective. And I'd love to see that talked about and taught more. Greg Carr, same question to you, and that is uh, the way I was taught history is not a history of individuals, but it's a history of movements. No, absolutely. But I think, once again, the borders of the American nation state are very quickly overflowed when that approach is taken. We can take the two examples you raised, Leslie, SNCC. And you know this well, uh, Kojo, better probably than I do, I'm sure. SNCC overflows the boundaries of the United States very quickly. (laughs) <laughs> and how that, it's, but it's still narrated as this kind of attempt by these young black folk to perfect American democracy. Well, I mean, when you start going through the documents and allow the archive to speak and even listen to the living memory of folks who are still around, I think of a, fi- a figure like a person who was on my dissertation committee, uh, uh, Marimba Ani. She was Donna Moses during SNCC. And of course, I think about SNCC's turn to Africa and the Caribbean and internationalist turn. That, that, that overflows the boundaries of the American nation state and becomes a problematic that even when we start talking about collective history, it's hard to, 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 to square that with this notion of American exceptionalism. And the example of Montgomery bus boycott, well, you know, I was just looking at a piece called Reflections of Our Pastor, which is a little book that was published by the folk who were the congregation of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. 
And when they started talking about the fact that the folks who were raising money put that money in about 10 black banks around the country to buy the, the cars that they used, for example, in the Montgomery bus boycott. And when you start looking at the fact that Kwame Nkrumah invited Martin and Coretta King to Ghana in 1956 to attend his uh, installation as the first uh, prime minister, and King gives a sermon to talk about that. You know, when you start talking about collective history and African-American history, the overflowing of the boundaries threatens to upset that master narrative. And when you take on white supremacy in that from that global perspective and tie it to the actual lived experiences of those, of those communities, that's a problematic that I don't know if we'll ever be able to, uh, to really approach. It's all right. It's former SNCC activists who first introduced me to Pan-Africanism, even though there were people from the Caribbean like C.L.R. James and George Padmore who had written it about written about it before. I didn't even discover them until after my interaction with former SNCC activists. So here now is Shaka in Greenbelt. Shaka, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, good, good afternoon, Kojo. How are you? I am well, my friend. Um, and good afternoon, Miss Young. I've never met you, but um, I like you already. And to the superstar, Greg Carr, good afternoon to you, Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead, Chad. Um, yeah, I had actually got very lucky. When I came from Guyana, Kojo, and went to high school in Beltsville, Maryland, High Point High School, there was a teacher there by, Ms. by the name of Edna McClellan. She actually was the first one to call me Shaka. And she taught me. Uh, in many, many classes, all uh, a lot about our history, both here in the United States and on the continent. And as, as um, Dr. Carr was talking about this overflow of the boundary, she was the reason I went to Lincoln University. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm also a bison, but I went to Lincoln first. And one of the reasons I went to Lincoln, because Kwame Nkrumah and Namdi Zikaway had gone to Lincoln. And of course, I got that from Ms. McClellan. You know? yep. So, you know, and I spent 14 years as a teacher in Prince George's County, I'm not retired, but okay. I'm doing something um, called Today in African History with Baba Shaka on um, on YouTube. My okay. wife actually set up a she set up a, a YouTube channel. I don't know much about it, but she's up a YouTube channel. I sit in front of the camera every day, so, and the goal is for us to do 365 lessons this year. So oh, far, cool we've done 35. Very good for you, Shaka. Thank you very much for your call and for sharing that with us. Namdi Azikwe was also educated at Howard, too. Um, Leslie Young, why is it so important, in your view, for educators to teach not just black history, but black futures? And please explain what that means. Um, I will. I also just want to add that my grandfather was from Buxton, Guyana. He was a teacher uh, before he became a doctor, and my aunt, Sheila Wilson, was also a teacher. So I come from a family of teachers from Guyana, and I should just add that in uh, because I'm connecting so much with with things that you and your colleagues are talking about. For a country with such a small population, less than a million people, we pop up everywhere. But go ahead, please, Leslie. (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere. Um, Okay, so black futurism... I think has this very cool aspect right now that is very, I teach middle school. So we're always like needing to be cool. Um, we always have to tap into, to what is interesting to them. And I think there are some incredible artists and authors that are very appealing to students right now that are working in both Afrofuturism and, um, 
African Futurism, um, which was coined by Nettie Okorafor. Um, she just has a new book called Remote Control that I'm really interested in, in checking out. But I think these things are very appealing to students because they're modern, they're rooted in now, they're rooted in science fiction, with fantasy, which they're always really interested in. But they connect back to culture, they connect back to history. Um, and I think you can make some very cool ties when you want to talk to students about let's imagine futures while we're grounded in our present work and learning so much from the past. I think Afrofuturism as a academic um, as an academic opportunity in schools helps us connect those threads um, for kids in ways that they find appealing and attractive. Greg Carr, we can't have a conversation about Afrofuturism without you weighing in because all of this history is really about crafting the future, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, Kojo. You know, we consult the archive of memory in many ways to recruit assistance from the past in writing the future. I mean, going back to pivotal moments in the past and imagining the roads not taken, the betrayal of Reconstruction, for example, I mean, and saying what would have happened if we had done this instead of that, often charts a course for imagining what we can do now. And so, you know, Afrofuturism, I mean, you can go back to the 19th century, Sutton Griggs' novel, black novelist, Imperium and Imperio. What would a black empire look like? George Schuyler for that black empire. I mean, come forward into the 1960s and 70s, you know, look at everybody from Sun Ra to, you know, the imaginings of those writing in the 70s and 80s, thinking through the possibilities, but they grounded even, even movies for K-12 students like Night John where you know, you're transported back to the past into on a plantation and folks teaching people how to read. The point I'm trying to make is that the, what you said is so true. All history in many ways is about the future. And the fights over curriculum are really fights about the possibilities of the world that we want to, making the world we want to live in. And so ultimately, I think, you know, when we talk about the question of curriculum, the question of narrative and choices, we're really talking about power the ability to choose, and not only the ability to achieve as individuals, which is why I think this is really, I agree, it's a problematic talking about here just heroic individuals, but really the possibilities to transform the society we live in that can celebrate a Kamala Harris at the same time it can tolerate poverty for countless, well, not countless, but millions of folk, millions of folk. And, you know, Afrofuturism is about imagining a better world, and the, the seeds for it lie in the world that was imagined in the past. As Leslie Young, the past year will undoubtedly be written into the history books to talk about the events, the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter protests, but because we don't have a great deal of time left, how did your students respond when they saw these events unfolding right here in the city, in particular as the insurrectionists stormed the Capitol on January 6th? They were frightened. They were frightened, and I think something that made them that heightened their fear was the fact that the adults didn't understand it either, or the adults did understand it and were really nervous to talk to them about true things that were happening, the levels of white supremacy and division and misinformation and disinformation that are occurring um, at just at, at levels that even the adults are struggling to process. Um, so I think there has been a lot of fear I think that our children are incredibly resilient, and so they press forward. 
Um, but it's a really good time to check in on our kids and make sure that we're giving them opportunities to talk through the specific things that they are thinking about and worried about, while at the same time, you know, making sure as the adults we're taking care of ourselves so that we can um, be there for them too. Greg Carr, I'm thinking about reconstruction and what the, what role the Klan played in getting rid of reconstruct, uh, reconstruction. How, how should the Trump years and this past year and these past few weeks um, be viewed in historical terms? Well, Kojo, certainly not as an aberration. Mm-hmm. I think as probably more as a retreat to the mean. I mean, the, the, you know, the gap between 20, 2016 and 2020 is in many ways a response to the previous eight years in terms of the presidency of Barack Obama, set policy aside, just the optics of it, that looks very similar if you start talking about American history as recent as 50 years or 60 or 70 years. The the Southern Manifesto in 1957 going forward, uh, there hasn't been a white majority in this country vote for a, a Democrat for president since 1968. You can look for the roots of... Um, Donald Trump, not just in the Reagan presidency, but the Wallace candidacy of 72. So I think we have to view it uh, not only years from now with the with the benefit of, of having had some time to think about it, but we have to view it also in the context of the longer arc of American history. There's a rhythm to history if you are attuned to searching for the rhythm. And once you can do that, you can not only predict what will happen next in some ways, you can then work to alter that rhythm. But to isolate these mom- this moment and look at it as an aberration, I think that's to repeat the mistakes of the past. Here is Sally in College Park, Maryland. Sally, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I have been, um, when, when I was a little girl, my parents were from Baltimore. Um, they lived in the city. Um, and my dad got work that took us overseas. So we lived in Sweden and Germany. And that doesn't really matter too much, except that they were always talking about um, racial justice and equity, but, and Martin Luther King, things like that. And I was the youngest of three and always been a very visually oriented person and an artist like my mom, I guess. And my grandmother, my mom's mom, was a teacher. And she also talked about people from different cultures. But I had some friends who were from Liberia and other countries um, growing up as well. But it was more that just I, as a little girl, I, I, I would even as a little girl, I would notice like, why are there no brown baby dolls? And sorry to say it that way, but that's how I would say it as a little girl. And I said, well, I want a brown baby doll. My mom made me one. Um, why are there no kids in these books that are everybody's just white? where the girls aren't talking, only the boy is talking in the book. So it starts off, I guess I'm saying, as a little girl, as a little person who is looking at things and in your own image or in someone else's image, you say, well, how is this possible? Even today, the famous movies and most children's books, you know, have. um, So my point is, as a teacher in, in PG County, as an art teacher, I was in East Hyattsville, working with mostly African-American and Latinx kids, finding that I wanted to teach them about artists that looked like them. And I'm so glad. it took a, it took a <laughs> while to you know, do my research, but I found some really fascinating people. Of course, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because we're almost out of time. But Leslie Young, in the minute we have left, Megan tweets to ask, what materials can parents use with grade school children to supplement what the school curriculum may or may not be teaching? 
Um, I think some of the same resources I named for teachers are totally accessible for families and for parents, and they should definitely tap into those. And the books that are on your children's selves mean so much. We just did an incredible project with a book called Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson that is chock full of African-American cultural icons. Just reading that book with children um, would be a really powerful experience because it would lead to a lot of research opportunities. So I think the books on your shelves, the resources I named that are for teachers, um, also being for, for students. I mean, for families. Um, and then in your community are so many different events um, and resources and looking to your local community as well for things that they may be offering um, that are especially designed okay. for the families there. Leslie Young, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really mm -hmm. been a fantastic opportunity to talk with you and with Dr. Carr. Thank you. Greg Carr, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, brother. Let me tell you, your classroom <laughs> has been a master lesson all along. We love you, brother. We value you, and we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you kindly. Today's Kojo Connect segment on, a teaching, on teaching black history was produced by Julie Deppenbrock. Coming up tomorrow on the Politics Hour, Arlington County Board Chair Matt DeFerranti talks with us about the latest COVID-19 numbers and what he thinks about Amazon's HQ2 design. Then D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson talks with us about homicides in the district, reopening D.C. public schools, and the snafu with the Capitol Security Fence. That all starts at noon tomorrow. Until then... Thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nandi. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.